Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, and we are continuing today in this series um, for Advent. It's been a little interrupted, but we'll get through the series. It's called Behold the Lamb, and we're, remember, we're tugging threads in Scripture. We're doing that biblical theological thread pulling that takes us to Jesus. And as we learn to expect, when we tug on the thread in this passage, we see the theme of the Lamb once again that leads us to Christ. So this story spans um, chapters 11 through 13. There's no possible way we're going to cover chapters 11 through 13. There will be a lot of things we don't mention and don't talk about. If we ever preach through Exodus, we'll go through more slowly. But I'm just going to ask you to please stand as we read Exodus 12, 1 through 13 this morning. Not three chapters, just 13 verses. Exodus 12, 1 through 13. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Uh, Your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. And your word, which we have read, is truth. Show us Christ and his grace. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Transform us more and more. Grow us in this grace into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. In the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you remember uh, the 1964 claymation Christmas classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Here's some knowing laughs. If you haven't seen it, you're missing out. It's amazing, actually. I grew up watching uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I introduced my girls to it recently, and I could practically recite every line. It's like, you can't fire me, I quit, right? This fog is as thick as peanut butter. You mean pea soup. You eat what you like, and I'll eat what I like, right? And Mariana was so over it. She's like, okay, we get it. You get it. You remember every line in the movie. So if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you know the story. Rudolph gets made fun of for his shiny red nose. 
And then there's the part that's not in the song when he gets chased around by the abominable snow monster of the north with his pals Yukon Cornelius and Hermie the Elf. But then one foggy Christmas Eve, uh, Rudolph saves Christmas, right? Leading Santa Claus through the stormy night, cutting through the thick Christmas fog with his shiny red nose. And if you ever saw it, you could even say it glows, right? But there's a scene at the end of the movie uh, it's a fun movie, but there's a scene at the end of the movie that's really sad, at least right until the very end. Uh, it's the scene on the island of misfit toys, this place full of toys that nobody wanted, toys that had been sent back or overlooked and forgotten entirely. You have Charlie in a box, not Jack in a box, Charlie in a box. Uh, you have a polka-dotted elephant, and you have Sally the doll, this doll who cries real tears. And they're sitting around a campfire, and it's cold, and they're forgotten. They're overlooked again. And polka-dotted elephant says, looks like we're forgotten again. And Charlie in a box says, better start dreaming about next year. And then Sally, the doll, says through tears, I don't have any dreams left to dream. That's pretty sad, isn't it? I don't have any dreams left to dream. And then rescue is on the way. You hear sleigh bells jingling on the wind a shiny red nose cutting through the Christmas fog, and rescue is finally here. But what you may not know is that that scene was not in the original TV show released in 1968. Santa promises to rescue the misfits at Rudolph's request, but then in the original show that aired, he just flies off into the sunset with his reindeer. And kids watching the show were so upset that they wrote letters to NBC. Hey, NBC, where's the rescue? For all you kids, uh, this is like getting canceled on social media, but there was no social media then. So NBC's mailroom was more flooded than Santa's mailroom at the North Pole with kids saying, wait a second, you can't promise to rescue the misfits and then not rescue the misfits. Where's the rescue? Well, the cries of the children reached the bigwigs at NBC and they added the scene. They added that scene, rescue for the misfits. Well, the scene we're looking at this morning and the big story of redemption in Scripture is God's answer to God's people, to His people, crying out in anguish, feeling overlooked and forgotten, saying, I don't have any dreams left to dream, but crying out, Lord, You promised. Where's the rescue? Where's the rescue? Have you ever had that question? Have you ever asked that question? Lord, where's the rescue? Well, God's people in bondage in Egypt, they're asking that question. We read in chapter 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's Exodus uh, 2, 23, and 24. And in our passage today, in Exodus 12, uh, the rescue is finally here. It's finally broke onto the scene, but it looks different than anyone could have expected. So what I want us to do first is, as we get into the sermon, is to set the scene to catch up. Where are we in the story of Scripture? But as we do so, we're going to look at three important truths about God's rescue. Three important truths about God's rescue First truth is God's rescue comes on His terms and not yours. God's rescue comes on His term and not yours. Secondly, God's rescue looks weak in the world's eyes. It looks weak in the world's eyes. And finally, 
God's rescue requires more perfection than you can muster. More perfection than you can muster. So, as we get into this first truth, let's just set the scene. Where are we? Uh, Remember, uh, as we go through this, we are catching up uh, in the story of Scripture, doing biblical theology, thread pulling to get us from scene to scene in the Lamb of God theme. So here we see that God's rescue comes on His terms and not ours. Uh, Let's walk through the story, just kind of hitting some of the high points. You remember Abraham? We've looked at Abraham. God broke into his life and said, I am now your covenant God and you are now my covenant servant and I will make you a a great nation. And he provided this uh, stand-in sacrifice, this lamb for a man. Uh, When he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he provides uh, the lamb, you know, the ram that was caught in the thicket. That's the stand-in substitute so that Isaac would be spared. And then God's promise uh, to make Abraham into a great nation finally begins to be fulfilled. You see, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob is renamed Israel. And he's the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs of the people of Israel. Uh, You might know the story that Joseph, uh, Jacob's favorite son, was led through a series of unfortunate events to become second in command in Egypt, and he spares Israel and many other people from a great famine. In God's providence, he has him in the right place at the right time. And so at the end of that story, uh, Joseph brings his brothers and all of their families to Goshen, to this land, this place in Egypt where they would live. And then you hear in Exodus 1-7, this promise is reiterated, and it's starting to be accomplished. Exodus 1-7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Remember, as many as the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. That's what God had promised Abraham. Well, this background brings us to the wicked oppression God's people are facing in the story we're looking at today. In the beginning of uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus, there's a new Pharaoh in town, a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he begins to fear the people of Israel because they're increasing in number. So he begins to enslave them. He orders the Hebrew midwives to kill any male sons born to the people of Israel. It's a really dark time in Israel's history. You can see how they're crying out to God for deliverance. Uh, Just as a little aside on the way to this first point, there's a tremendous display of courage in these dark days. Uh, The Pharaoh says that you have to, tells the midwives, you have to kill all of the baby boys of Israel. Uh, But there's this courage in the darkness, and it's the best kind of courage. I think you call that faith. Uh, The Hebrew midwives, in this brilliant act of faith, uh, they defy Pharaoh's orders. They say they're not going to do it. It's great. The midwives actually say that Hebrew wives give birth so fast that we can't make it there in time to carry out Pharaoh's orders. I'm sure some of our expectant mothers might be asking, hey, how could I get in on that? I'd, I'd like to know the secret behind that. But this is incredible faith. Even in this incredibly trying time, you see faith, and you see it as well, and they're crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Well, one of these babies that's born into slavery is Moses. And as only God's providence would have it, Moses ends up in Pharaoh's household, growing up in the palace. And he's the one who goes on behalf of God, demanding that Pharaoh let his people go. So our story this morning is in the heat of this standoff, where God is sending plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses is saying, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh will not bend But finally, he will not be able to withstand uh, this plague, plague number 12. 
His firstborn and the firstborn in all of Egypt will be taken by the hand of God when his angel of death visits the land. Uh, come, he comes on what would be, would be known later as the first Passover night. The first Passover night. So here we find this other high point in this thread of the Lamb of God through Scripture. Lamb for a family. So I want you to consider this first point. God's rescue comes on his terms and not yours. See, we think we can dictate the terms of our deliverance, uh, but we can't. Our biggest problem is our pride. It gets in the way, and we try to climb the ladder of self-righteousness, and we try to dig ourselves out of the hole of sin. We try to rescue ourselves, uh, and it's really what we're conditioned to think. It's the air we breathe, you could say. It's the way uh, of the world to think that we can dictate the terms of our rescue. We're wired to think that we can rescue ourselves by our good works. And the world we live in today doesn't do us any favors. It just reinforces that. Uh, 21st century Americans place a premium on self-effort, on hustle, on making a name for yourself. That may look like 4.3 million followers on social media. It may look like having the corner office as you climb the ladder of your career. Uh, it may look like a bulletproof retirement that you've secured by working hard and bending whatever rules you had to bend to get there. It's no surprise that this translates over into our approach uh, to God, and our approach to trying to get out of the mess of sin. In our hubris, in our pride, we figure, hey, we've got this. We don't really need what God has to provide. We can just try really, really hard. We can just be really, really good. We'll give really, really big. Uh, we'll serve really, really well. Uh, we'll be better and we'll do better, and that will be enough. But when that's how we approach the God of all the earth, our creator, the holy, holy, holy God, thrice holy according to scripture, we're no better than Pharaoh. We're no better than him. We're belittling God with our own pride when that's how we expect the rescue to happen. We're making him small because we think we're great, thinking rescue can come on our own terms, but God's rescue comes on his terms and not yours. Passover night reminds us that you can't outrun God's justice through your own efforts. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can do. There's, you're not untouchable. You're not out of reach of God and his justice. Judgment is coming, and it's coming for you unless you come to God on his terms, accepting the rescue that God himself provides. We see that in what he provides on Passover. You have plague after plague, culminating in the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son and heir. And then with this final plague, God brings Pharaoh to his knees. Uh, he brings, it, brings him to his knees, not in repentance, though. He's not repentant. He just caves and lets God's people go. Uh, there's a lesson there, I think, for us. It's a cautionary tale for us that we would repent and turn to God, receiving the rescue that he gives us. God's instructions to his own people on Passover night uh, highlight a really sobering truth. You'll notice this plague would strike Pharaoh's household, but all of the households in Egypt would be struck. And furthermore, it would strike the homes of Israel unless they do what God says, unless they accept the rescue that he provides. The Lord is going to indiscriminately judge all of the firstborns of Egyptians and of Israel alike. Uh, unless they cling to the Passover, unless they cling to uh, the rescue plan that God has given them. It should remind us that this isn't just an out there problem. We have a problem too, and we need rescue as well. We have an in here dilemma that needs to be met by Christ's blood. So what hope then do we have in the face of our sin? 
If rescue comes on God's terms, where can we find rescue? Where can we find our exodus? The exodus, after all, was a picture of the final uh, rescue from slavery to sin, from uh, judgment and death. So where is our exodus? Where is our rescue? Uh, It's this picture of salvation from sin and judgment. If God's rescue comes on his terms, then what is it? What are the terms? What does Scripture say? Well, the terms of God's deliverance are simple, and they boil down to the simple act of faith. Romans 5, 1, or Romans 1, 5 says, the obedience of faith. Those are the terms. The obedience of faith. And even faith isn't something you can do yourself. Faith is a gift of God. It's not of work so that you can't brag about it, Paul writes. Through and through, God sets the terms for our rescue. It's like Augustine, the early church father, said, God even gives what he demands. So, if God's rescue comes on his terms, not yours, and if God's rescue is the obedience of faith, then we have to ask faith in what? Faith in what? What do we lay hold of? What is God's rescue plan? Well, God's rescue plan isn't an it. It's a who. It's a who. He goes by many names, one of the most beautiful of which we're looking at in this series. God's rescue plan is the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb of God that He has provided. So you say, okay, I'm ready to accept God's rescue plan, uh, the Lamb of God, but what does that look like? What does this rescue entail? What does it look like? Well, that's something else we learn. It's the second important truth we learn from this first Passover. First, God's deliverance comes on His terms and not yours. Second, God's deliverance looks weak in the world's eyes. It looks weak in the world's eyes. Let's read the passage again. Look again with me at Exodus 12, 1 and following. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, a lamb for a family. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now skip down to verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So those are the terms of God's rescue. That's what it looks like. Wouldn't you agree that it seems a little weak by worldly standards? A little weak in the world's wisdom? You want to be rescued? God says, then eat a lamb without blemish and cover your house under its blood. What is that? What is that? The angel of death is coming. Eat a lamb. You would think that you would want a mighty angelic warrior, right, to stand between you and this specter that's coming for your firstborn. A divine fortress that God provides, surrounded by an army of angels to protect you. Maybe send the cherubim from over at the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, right, that spins every which way to protect you. No, God says, go get a lamb and eat it and paint the doorposts of your house with its blood. It doesn't sound like much of a rescue, does it? It doesn't sound like deliverance 
Can a lamb really be the hero we need to deliver us? Stephen Charnock, an English Puritan and Presbyterian minister in the 17th century, wrote this wonderful reflection about this very point in his book, Christ Our Passover. Charnock said, From this Paschal Passover lamb prefiguring the Redeemer, the Jews might have learned not to expect a Messiah wading through the world in blood and slaughter, sheathing his sword in the bowels of his enemies, and flourishing with temporal victories and successes. You see, that's what we envision when we think of a rescuer. We want a mighty warrior like that. Charnock says that the lamb should have made the Jews look for someone like Jesus, someone who's meek, humble, and lowly, suiting the temperament of the lamb which represented him in the Passover. You see, the weakness that we perceive in the Passover lamb, a bleeding, helpless, frail little lamb, Uh, It goes to the heart of the foolishness of the gospel. The foolishness of the gospel in the eyes of the world. I'm sure you've you've been there. You've sensed this sharing the gospel. You start talking with someone about the gospel, trying to share your faith, and you talk about being washed in the blood, and you just feel this twinge of embarrassment maybe because it just sounds weird, strange, foolish in the world's eyes. Are you washed in the blood? It's like people have been institutionalized for saying things less than that, I think. But we can't be embarrassed because this is the saving power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said. But it looks like insanity in the eyes of the world. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he later says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's telling, isn't it, that on the day when Christ was betrayed, or when he was crucified, on the day when he was presented by Pilate, and he was offered a chance. The Jews were offered a chance to choose him to be released. Who did they cry out for? Did they say, yes, we want Jesus back. Release him, please. Who did they cry out for? They cried out for Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. They didn't want a lamb. They wanted a lion right now. Barabbas was a sword-wielding zealot, a Jewish freedom fighter, someone they thought could deliver them from the oppression of Rome, someone they thought could get the job done. And like so many do, they were looking for a strong man who could shake things up in their political sphere. Someone who would go down fighting to deliver them from oppression right now, here and now in the present. But what they couldn't see and what we so often fail to see is that their biggest problem and our biggest problem, the problem that will condemn our souls to hell, it can't be hacked through with a sword or solved by changing a political policy or fixed by finding a strong man, it can only be fixed by the Lamb. Our biggest problem is condemnation in the sight of a holy God. And rescue from that problem, rescue from that problem comes on God's terms and not, not ours. Rescue from that problem looks weak in the world's eyes, but it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It, it looks like a lamb who's silent before its shearers, like a lamb led to the slaughter, opening not its mouth. So friend, the price you owe for sin against the eternal holy God is eternal spiritual death. All have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. We have to make payroll for our sins, Scripture says, and we come up short. The wages of sin is death, but God gives a gift for sinners. He gives the gift of eternal life through a lamb slaughtered in our place, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wonderful news, friends, is that Christ, the Lamb of God, is the perfect sacrifice that God's rescue requires. That's the third point I want to look at with you. The third truth we learn from this. First, God's rescue comes on His terms, not yours. Second, God's rescue looks weak in the world's eyes. Finally, God's rescue requires more perfection than you can muster. It requires more perfection than you have. This might be the most important thing to grasp in this story of the Passover. This Passover lamb points to Jesus in all kinds of ways, ways that we aren't even taking the time to look at today. But I want to hone in on just one crucial thing about the lamb. This is something you have to see. It is the perfect lamb. It's the perfect lamb. This isn't the runt of the litter. This isn't the lamb with a bum leg. This isn't the scrawniest lamb that, okay, I guess I'll give this one up for Passover. This is the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb. Your lamb, we read, shall be without blemish. And the reason this is so important, the reason this is so crucial, is that nothing but absolute perfection can satisfy the demands of God's perfect justice. What's needed is perfect purity, unwavering holiness, uncheckered obedience in every aspect and area of life. Does anyone in this room fit that bill? Does anyone measure up to that level of perfection? There's only one human being who ever measured up, and he was no mere human being. We need a substitute, a sacrifice that can stand in for us because of our sin and satisfy the perfect holiness of a God that we've dragged through the mud with our disobedience. What we have is the stand-in substitute of Jesus, the perfect substitute who can offer up more perfection than we could ever possibly have. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism Uh, from one of our sister denominations, says in question and answer 18, question, who then is that mediator who is one person, in one person both very God and a real righteous man? That's what we need. Someone who is truly God and truly man. Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here's the incredible thing about God's rescue. It requires more perfection than you can muster, but there's good news. There's good news. His rescue is not based on your perfection. It's not based on your perfection. Rather, it's grounded in God's promise. This rescue is grounded in His promise fulfilled in Jesus. His rescue of His people is not grounded in their obedience, but in His faithfulness to His covenant fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Back up with me a little in the story because I want us to carry this thread along as we go through this series. Not just the thread of the Lamb, but the thread of the covenant promise. Moses, when he was a young man, he's still living in Egypt and he's getting frustrated with how he sees the Egyptians treating uh, the Hebrews. And he sees these Egyptian taskmasters beating uh, Hebrew slaves. So he goes in in Exodus 2, we read about this. uh, He goes and he kills them. He kills them and he covers them in the sand. It comes, you know, just before we read the cry of the Hebrews crying out to the Lord. So Moses sees this. He takes matters into his own hands. Maybe he was trying to start a revolt. Maybe he thought this is how rescue could happen. And he takes matters into his own hands, kills these taskmasters, and then he flees into the desert. 
If you know the story, uh, it's not all bad. He goes to the desert and he finds a wife, so that's a plus. The minus is he has to spend years and years herding sheep for his father-in-law, wandering the desert. So there's ups and downs, but then one day Moses sees a burning bush. He probably saw that a lot in a hot, arid desert, but this bush was not consumed. He approaches it and God himself speaks to him from the bush. And I want you to hear what God tells Moses about what this rescue will be based upon. What God's rescue will be based upon. Certainly not because the people are perfect and deserve to be rescued. And certainly not Moses. We know he's not perfect. What does God say? Specifically, who does God say he is? Exodus 3.13 and following. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Hear what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Hear what God says. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What is God saying when he says that? When he names himself after these three men? He's saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's saying, in essence, tell them, I'm the covenant God who keeps his promises. I made a promise. God promised Abraham that he would be a God to him and to his children. It's on the basis of that promise, on the basis of that covenant promise that God now comes to rescue his people. I really want that to sink in this morning. I want you to hear that. When Moses asked God to provide him with his name, what did he say? He named himself after imperfect people. God said, who am I? I'm the God of Abraham the sinner, Isaac the sinner, Jacob the sinner. That is who I am. This is my name forever. The perfect God names himself after sinners, putting himself on the side of imperfect people because he doesn't save on the basis of their perfection. He saves on the basis of his covenant promise. So, friends, just bringing this full circle You may want to approach God on your own terms. It's how we naturally want to approach God, doing enough good to be welcomed by God, but you'll never be good enough. God comes to you on his terms. He's provided rescue for you, not on the basis of your perfect life, but on the basis of his perfect faithfulness to his covenant promise, which he has made. Remember, this is a covenant-keeping God like none other Abraham had ever known. God takes up both sides of the deal. I promise to protect you, and instead of hacking you in pieces when you fail, I'll take the punishment on myself. He takes both sides of the bargain. He would protect Abraham and he would bear any punishment incurred by Abraham. So this stand-in for imperfect people, is the, it's pictured in this lamb provided throughout Scripture, the lamb provided for Isaac and the lamb provided for the people on this Passover night, this substitute in their place. The good news is that even though we can't be perfect enough, God has provided a substitute so you can be rescued and you can be forgiven. You're not perfect, but God remembers his promise. Now, Peter put it this way in his first letter. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you uh, from your ancestors, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. So we have to cling by faith to that lamb that God has given us. So, ending the story now, what happened that Passover night? As people ate their meal, dressed as the kids were just a moment ago, ready to leave, rescue broke onto the scene. And God's people left Egypt that night as they ate the sacrifice provided for them. Sure, Pharaoh would try to get them back at the Red Sea. That doesn't happen. It's another story for another time. Sadly, Pharaoh never gives in and bows the knee to God. Uh, we shouldn't follow in Pharaoh's steps, in his footsteps. We should follow God in repentance and faith, receiving the rescue he provides. One more thing about this story and how it takes us to Jesus. In just a moment, after we welcome new members, uh, we welcome some of our young people who are already members to the table for the first time, and we even see baptisms this morning. Uh, after all of that, we're going to come to a table, and we're going to take and eat. We're going to take and eat. And we talk a lot about the blood on the doorposts at Passover, uh, but we have to remember that it wasn't just paint for the doorposts. This was a meal. God's rescue was a meal. It was a meal to be eaten. You want to be rescued? God has provided a feast for you. That's the rescue he gives. We have to, by faith, feast upon the meal of grace that God provides. His son, his son and the sacrifice that nourishes us, that rescues and redeems us. This lamb given in the place of sinners like you and me to make us part of a family that feasts on God's grace forever. So it comes on God's terms and not yours. It looks weak in the world's eyes and it requires more perfection than you have, but that's the rescue that God has provided, pictured in this first Passover. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this feast of grace. We thank you for the feast of deliverance, the feast of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Forgive us for the many times we want to approach you on our terms and for the times we long for a deliverer according to the wisdom of the world. Help us to receive the perfection only you can provide and that you have provided in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen. Please take out your